Welcome to Hill Law Firm Cases, a podcast discussing real-world cases handled by Justin Hill and the Hill Law Firm. For confidentiality reasons, names and amounts of any settlements have been removed. However, the facts are real, and these are the cases we handle on a day-to-day basis. All right, this is another episode of Hill Law Firm Podcasts. I have Javier Espinoza here with me today, who has been kind enough to do an episode of the Alamo Hour, so I'm holding him over to discuss work injury cases with me. Javier is one of the best lawyers in our city, one of the best lawyers in the state. He has really chosen to focus, um, not exclusively, but in a big way, on work injury cases. Our law firm has worked uh, multiple cases with his law firm, and even when we don't involve them, they've been an invaluable resource to myself and to others in the city and others around the state who have questions about representing injured workers. So Javier, thank you for being here. And I just want to start, why did you get so focused into work injury cases in your career and in your practice? Um, well, the main reason is because I came to a new city uh, from El Paso, and when I got here, I, I was relatively unknown, and so I pretty quickly had to develop a niche, and number one, it was a niche that I really, really liked. Um, having come from a working-class family, you know, I think it was a real natural fit to, to represent workers, Sure. but the bigger, I guess, business sense of it is, is I really, it's very difficult to compete with everybody, so I very quickly developed, uh, I needed to pick a niche. And when I started picking the, the work injury niche, um, I just fell in love with it because I fell in love with the clients and I fell in love with the type of law. And it's so different than your regular average case that uh, it really gave me a, a leg up, I felt. Yeah, and I think that's important to talk about. Everybody everybody that advertises, advertises as though a widget is a widget and a case is a case and it's all the same. Um one of the biggest sort of surprises to me as I started building my own practice and seeing more cases was the prevalence of arbitration agreements in work injury uh, cases, work injury situations. What are some of the nuances to work injury that make it a little different than, say, a car wreck or, a, you know, an 18-wheeler wreck? Sure. Well, there's three uh, very specific types of, of work injuries. Number one, somebody gets injured at work. If they have workers' compensation, then you can't sue the employer. You've got to go file a workers' compensation claim. And that is administrative. That is through the state of Texas. It's regulated. It is a whole other world from any type of lawsuit. If the employer does not have workers' comp, then it's considered a non-subscriber. They don't subscribe to workers' comp. You you have to file a claim directly against the employer. The difference between a work injury non-subscriber claim and, let's say, a car wreck case is that a lot of times... You file a lawsuit in a non-subscriber case, and the employer has paid all their wages, has paid all their medical. So they say, what are you suing for? And, and you know, versus a car wreck where you're suing for past medical, future medical, sure. impairment, all that stuff. Well, in a work injury case, that's essentially what you're suing for is the intangibles, the yeah. mental language, impairment, pain and suffering. And if there's any evidence of future medical that is not covered by the employer or any difference in pay, uh, the law's wages. So damages-wise, they're very, very different. Yeah. Liability-wise, they are completely different. Uh, in a non-subscriber case, you cannot take the employee's negligence into account. or not. You're not supposed to because the statute specifically says you can't take their negligence into account. However, the Texas Supreme Court has kind of scaled that back uh, a lot uh, under the guise of no duty. Sure. And, and I know you and I have talked about that where, you know, the Texas Supreme Court has held if somebody falls from a ladder, for example, 
used to be I could get out there and say, well, the employer chose not to have workers comp. So if the employer is 99% at fault, they didn't train him properly, they should have had somebody holding the ladder, you know, it was an old ladder that that rocked on him, anything. 1% negligence, the employer bought it all. Now what the Texas Supreme Court has said is if the employee knew that it was rickety, if the employee knew it was old, if the employee knew that he should have somebody holding the ladder, then he was aware of the danger and the employer owes no duty to the employee. And so if an attorney takes one of these cases and thinks, oh, easy, 1%, the nuances is where they get you. Because yeah. once they go take your client's deposition, they tell them, well, you knew the ladder was old. You knew that you could fall. You knew you should have had somebody hold the ladder, right? Yes, yes, yes. Here comes the summary judgment. Judge, we have no duty to this person because he was aware and he right. chose to get up there. I mean, I look at some of the cases I've done now on the job, and I thought, how did we get what we got? Because if the defense, which I think it's also a fair point that some defense lawyers don't really know how to defend these either and think that same way, and they kind of ignore that really solid defense that they have, and sometimes it works out in our favor. For sure. We had a really, really good arbitration result on a case where we thought they had a defense, and and they, uh, they stipulated to liability. (laughs) <laughs> All right, well, we're not going to fight you on it because they come in thinking the same. 1%, right? 1%. And if they don't normally practice in the non-subscriber world, they're not aware of these cases that have come out from the Texas sure. Supreme Court that have kind of scaled it back. So they remember still from 20 years ago, 1%, and, you know, you pretty much have, have, have bought it all. And we have to tell clients, and you have to do it more than I do, that we have an unfriendly Supreme Court. We currently have an unfriend, unfriendly legislator. So if you think you're going to take your case up and win the day on making new law or making an exception for yourself, that's just not going to happen right now. There has not been a positive tech, uh, tech Supreme Court case on non-subscriber law come out probably in the last 15 years. So we're about as low as you can get in terms of worker safety, as high as you can get in terms of worker fatality, and about as bad in terms of worker protections from the court. This is a really bad trifecta. And it even gets worse whenever you mix the arbitration provisions. Sure. And, and so and let's talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So, so what the Texas Supreme Court has done, and not just the Texas Supreme Court, but it came down from the federal government, uh, the American Arbitration Act, way, way back in the early 1900s, they decided that if two companies are going to fight and they're going to have this big multi-million dollar spat, it's probably better to go to an arbitrator or arbitrators that are familiar with, you know, the systems that are familiar with the trade. And, and, and that makes sense. It was created for specialized types right. of disputes. Yeah, exactly. But it poured over probably around 2003, 2004 is when we first started seeing them spill over into the employment context, where if you worked for HEB, if you worked for Whataburger, if you worked for Lowe's that are all non-subscribers, they would make you as part of your orientation, sign an arbitration agreement saying that you were agreeing to, to not ever sue in state court but go to an arbitrator. So we fought those tooth and nail and through probably mid 2005 through about 2010, it was pretty well settled law from the Texas Supreme court that if you sniffed arbitration, you were stuck in arbitration. Even, even to the, if you died at work, it even could bind your kids and your spouses that were bringing a claim for your death. And so it's very fruitless now to fight arbitrations. And so what we did is we've just embraced them. And and I think that, Taking one step back, I think a lot of people don't realize that in Texas, you used to either have workers' comp, and if you didn't, you could get sued in the courts. Then Texas, and I think just Oklahoma, created this weird in-between where they said, well, we're not going to carry comp, but we also don't want to get sued, so we're going to create this quasi-comp, but we manage it system, and if you do sue us, you have to sue us in arbitration. So really, Texas is unique in that we have this third rail for employers to avoid having to go in front of a jury, I guess is the best way to put it. Well, we didn't talk about that, but Texas 
truly is the only state in all of the United States that does not have mandatory comp. Oklahoma has a mixed system, okay. but Texas is truly the only one that wow. if you and I open up a roofing company and we want to have a thousand employees sitting on roofs and doing whatever they want, we don't have to have workers. I comp. didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And so we are very, very unique in that sense. And I think what was happening is they were just getting a lot of big jury verdicts. Yeah. And so they said, well, why don't we go to this arbitration system? And here's the kicker that a lot of attorneys call me sometimes and they tell me, what? How do I explain this to my client? Because if the American Arbitration Association is the association that was picked by the employer when they made this contract between them and the employee, we have to go to the American Arbitration Association and we pick a, a arbitrator randomly and by we can't agree to this one, we can't agree to that one, and whoever they can't agree. If there's one that we both don't strike, that ends up as our arbitrator. But the employer pays 100 Well, we pay a $200 filing fee. Yeah. The employer pays all the arbitrator costs, sure. all the arbitrator fees, every time there's a hearing, the arbitrator charges. And I can tell you that we've had one to two day arbitrations where the arbitrator made $22,000, $22,000 to $25,000. Well, I think that's a great point because say you're injured at Fortune 500 company and you're John Doe. Well, John Doe has one day in front of this arbitrator and AAA, the American Arbitration Association, and Fortune 500 company maybe has 500 arbitrations over a 10-year period where they're paying them $22,000. I mean, they know where their bread is buttered. The system is stacked against these injured employees. And I think that's why it's important that people, when they're injured on the job, hire lawyers that know what they're doing. So what makes your firm different in terms of how you work a case for a injured worker? Well, here's one thing that I, one point that I want to make sure. in, in relation to that. There was a study, and I can't cite it off the top of my head. There's a study that was done as to the outcomes of arbitrations, and they definitely went more for employers that were regularly in front of arbitrators. Sure. But it it, it, it was almost equally well for firms that huh. were in front of the arbitrators okay. over and over. And so I tell a lot of our referring attorneys, look, here's a good non-subscriber case you've got. You can go follow the arbitration. I can show you how to do the arbitration and help you along the way. But understand, we probably have about 300 arbitrations yeah. in our firm at any given point. We see the same arbitrators over and yeah. over. There are certain arbitrators we've arbitrated with two or three times. And I tell you what, if we've lost one and we felt like we've been treated unfairly, we will never agree to the, that arbitrator again. And he doesn't make his 22000 a day. And I know that the employers <laughs> do the same thing. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, you know, obviously without disclosing names, but we had a really, really good hit against a, a big retailer. And at this at a CLE, because these arbitrators are attorneys as well. Yeah. Some of them are older attorneys. And I saw this attorney at an arbitration, I mean, at a CLE, and just said, hello, how are you doing, sir? And, you know, good to see you. And just a very small chat. And then he said, uh, you know, how's the arbitration world treating you? I said, you know, we're fine, kicking and screaming. And, and how's your arbitration practice going? He goes, it's fine. But I, you know, never been picked by that, by that company again. Huh. Ever since we had that joint, you know, that arbitration yeah. together. And so an arbitrator telling me I've never been picked by a company that I issued an award against, do you think that they don't have that on their mind whenever they're issuing these awards yeah. against a big company that may be another 22000 25000 in three different cases for the year? And to be fair, you're a qualified arbitrator, I think. I am a qualified arbitrator, but I never get picked. <laughs> <laughs> I think my reputation is, is pretty well set that I represent plaintiffs, and I'm pretty plaintiff-oriented. Yeah. So I don't think any defense attorneys ever agreed to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it works out like that. It's a lot of, you know, I see some of those panels sometimes, the lists of them, and I, I honestly rarely have a clue who any of them are. I've seen my... 
former aunt on it once or twice. <laughs> I keep that to myself, what her name is. Uh, you know, y'all, your firm and my firm are working on a case right now. And, you know, I'm a one-man shop, and I had a good on-the-job injury case came in. And I called y'all, and I said, I'm in depots in East Texas. I need somebody to come meet with this guy. We'll work it this way if it's regular lawsuit. We'll work it that way if it's arbitration. Turns out arbitration, we're going to work the case together. But y'all are going to show me some ropes on arbitration because sure. it's a little bit of a different process. I mean, you don't pick a jury, and you don't, you know – the filing system is different and how it's basically a hearing and a conference table at the end of the day is your trial, right? It, it, it is. Now we work them up very similar to a trial in the sense that we send out discovery. We have discovery fights. We have motions to compel. We have depots. We have everything. But when, but here's the, if, if there's any practitioner that's listening to this right now, that, that if I can give them a, a golden nugget, right? A morsel. Your arbitrator is your fact finder, is your judge, is your jury, bailiff, everything. Right. This person is everything, right? So what defense attorneys that are well-versed in arbitration do, and what we do being well-versed in arbitration, is we throw everything at the fact finder. If the defense attorney was, a, I mean, the defendant, you know, was accused of pedophilia, whatever, yeah. whatever. Well, you know, we throw it out there, and they file a motion to you know, strike that evidence or whatever. But once it's heard, it's difficult to unhear it. Yeah. You know, we had a client that um, had a, a long criminal history from way before, had no relevance to this injury, had no relevance to anything. But they asked him, you know, have you ever been arrested? And he said, um, he goes, I can't remember. And then that they, that's all he said. I can't remember. I don't remember. And they said, well, are you sure? Well, I, I don't remember. And so they filed a motion to dismiss the arbitration because her client had uh, lied under oath. And then they attached the long list of criminal history he had. But well, you can dismiss an arbitration if somebody's dishonest? No. Oh. But all they this wanted to do up. was they wanted to put <laughs> all of the criminal history of our client in front of the arbitrator because that's the fact finder. So same thing. We went back and said, well, judge, you know, they, we asked them if there's other lawsuits and they said no or whatever, you know, they, they weren't truthful. And here's all the others we have against them. And here's all the, the work injuries we've Jesus. had. And you throw everything at them. And of course, the judge says, like, none of that is relevant on either side. Let's hear this work injury. But they've already heard it. Yeah. And and so those are things that we do in arbitration is we just throw everything out there. But you see people do in trial sometimes, but they risk a mistrial if the judge won't give a limiting instruction or something. I mean, there are there are consequences doing it in front of a jury. Well, not just that, but usually the judge is a gatekeeper. If if you sure. and I go try a case and we there's a big criminal history that is beyond the ten years, not relevant, whatever, we're gonna file a motion in limine. Judge, this should never get out in front of the jury. The judge is the gatekeeper. Jury never hears that if they make the right call. Right. But when you're going to the judge and you're telling this, you should never hear this, <laughs> you're right. hearing it. And, and so we use that a lot um, to our benefit. We'll file summary judgments. So the point is that there are specific strategies for arbitration that are separate apart from what we were all taught in law school or in our first few trials. For sure. Yeah. Completely different. And, and, you know, whereas a jury may be a little more sympathetic to your client that has a fractured ankle, um, because that's the first time and maybe only time they're going to hear about that and the effects are. When you go in front of an arbitrator, it's pretty cut and dry because this guy may have, or woman may have heard an arbitration three weeks ago about a guy that died. Uh, and or defended a hundred death cases. Or, exactly. Yeah. And so they don't have a lot of that sympathy factor. And so definitely it is, it is a very different strategy to arbitrate a case versus trying a case. Even when you have wins, the, there's a lid on damages that's not there sometimes in a jury case. I evaluate cases. Um, one of the big evaluations is, is it arbitration or is it trial? Yeah. And if it's arbitration, you're definitely knocking off a few 
points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, two more questions, and we're going to finish this, and then people can hear the rest of what we're going to talk about because we're going to really get into some of your more high-profile cases on the Alamo Hour. But um, what types of cases are y'all currently taking? Because y'all have recently – not super recent, but kind of recent, added a workers' comp division. So what are the cases y'all are taking now? So we have strived to really be a full-service work injury firm. So we will take, we have two attorneys that solely do workers' compensation, Amanda Spencer, Jesse Bustillos. We have Stephen Sachs, who solely does, car, we'll do some car rigs, but but in, from the work injury standpoint, he does all of our 451s, which is somebody gets hurt at work, they file a workers' comp claim, they get fired. Yeah. 451 employment claim. Then we've got Danique Villasenor Hernandez, Laura Brock, Jade Heap, and myself that are doing non-subscribers and third-party work injury okay. cases. So those are the four cases that can come from a work injury. 451, non-subscriber, third-party, and straight workers' comp. And now we've got attorneys that are dedicated to every type of case from a work injury. One-stop shop. One-stop shop. Um, okay, last question I want to ask you. You moved to San Antonio, I think, not long before me. You came from a different city where you've been practicing why did you choose San Antonio as your place to sort of set up shop and really expand your practice? Um, two reasons. Number one, uh, we lived in El Paso, and my wife and I had had a deal that I was going to go to law school, and then then she was going to go to law school. Ah. And uh, we lived in El Paso. There's no law school in El Paso. So it was either Texas Tech in Lubbock where I went, we'd go back to Texas Tech, or we would come to San Antonio. And, you know, just kind of looking at the long-term future and lay of the land, um, I loved San Antonio. I've always loved it. And I said, if we're going to make a life decision, this is definitely the place where we want to be. Okay. And, 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 and then there's a whole long backstory about Henry Cisneros and why I'm here. But that's way for another show. That's for the other <laughs> show. And do you like practicing law in San Antonio? I love San Antonio. I love San Antonio. You know, it's been very welcoming uh, to me. The people are friendly. The, the, the legal community is small. The judges are great. It's turning blue. It's turned blue pretty it's much. Blue. Yeah, I think yeah. it's blue now. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's great for us. Well, thank you for coming on here. The point of this is I, I want to have local lawyers on here talk. I mean, you and I do a lot of the same types of cases. Some of them, do, I don't have pride of ownership like a lot of lawyers and don't think I can't learn from people. And I really like working with y'all's firm on some cases, and I've learned a lot. And Laura calls me on questions, and I help her when I can. And so I want to have this conversation with just local lawyers talking about what we do and sort of what we're getting into Next time you have like a lock-in terror case or something like that, I want to get you back on to talk about it because that's fascinating. We're going to talk about it on the Alamar. Uh, but thank you for being here. Definitely. Thank you for having me.